0: This is season eight of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast.
1: I'm D.L. Mayfield.
0: I'm Crispin Mayfield.
1: And this season we're talking about the thorniest, maybe horniest subject we've ever done, Christian romance. Are you ready, Crispin?
0: I don't think I am, but here we go. All right, before we get started today, because we're going to get into it right away, huge trigger warning on this episode, because we are talking about violence against women in the Hebrew scriptures, and um, and that's really what a lot of this episode is about. Mm-hmm. So just as a heads up, prepare yourself or take care of yourself or skip this episode, mm-hmm. depending on what feels best to you. But basically, we're talking about what happens to women in scriptures and... That is really traumatizing. Mm -hmm. I have been waiting for this episode because this was one of the first interviews I listened to. And I was so excited because we're talking again about redeeming love, but talking to someone that has actually studied Hosea, a, a biblical scholar.
1: Yeah, so talking to an actual, you know, PhD scholar of biblical studies was wild. And I don't know. I kind of feel like I have to caveat this episode. Yeah? Yeah, because I know you loved listening to it and you've loved editing it, but Mm -hmm. I did not love re-listening to it, to edit it, just because of myself. Mm. I think, you know, Dr. Fry is amazing and actually does such a good job of, like, throwing in a lot of, like... Scholars and books that I think people want to research probably after listening to this, but um, You can tell I was on a journey in this interview and you could also tell that I was sort of in the thick Of thinking through so many of the ethical questions that uh, redeeming love in particular kicked up for me So I just want to say that um you're, you're just going to hear me processing. And also, um, I was literally, like, having some meltdowns, you know, about these things. And, and in our conversation, Dr. Fry brought up Judges 19, you know, this, like, really infamous text of terror about mm-hmm. the concubine, you know, being, you know, raped until she died and then being dismembered and sent around, you know. And tying Judges 19 into the book of Hosea, like, now listening back to this interview, I can— that's where I get derailed. And that's where I really struggle to come back into like being really present with my conversation. So I kind of was like, Chris, you should just edit out all of my yammerings and questions and stutterings and processing. But I mean, ultimately we decided to leave it in because this is like a legitimate response to right. the text of terror in mm-hmm. the Bible. So I had a trauma response. I'm like flailing existentially. I've been sent to the brink of despair about a God who lets these things happen in a holy mm-hmm. text that I was never allowed to question. You know, you know so
0: yeah. I just want well, to say that. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, that, that term that you just used, texts of terror, uh-huh. I know that there are communities where that is commonly used, I think, mm-hmm. in a lot of like feminist readings of scripture, if I'm correct.
1: Yeah, so, like, it comes from Phyllis Tribble, I believe, and I heard it from Rachel Held Evans, who I do reference in this interview, but it's, yeah, it's much more common to scholars like, you know, Dr. Fry. So, yes, the texts of terror are, like, what feminist and womenist theologians um, have pointed out as, as texts that uh, are extremely violent against women, in particular, in mm-hmm. the scriptures. So. Right,
0: yeah, and this idea of, like, naming it so to mm-hmm. say, like, you're... Emotional reaction to this is is a reasonable yes. reaction, right?
1: Yeah. So, the, uh, so I'm em- I'm embarrassed, but also like, is, it's like a real interaction about mm-hmm. the Bible and how mm-hmm. traumatic the Bible can be. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Uh, I feel pretty embarrassed about it, but you know, just listen to it through that lens, I suppose.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about it, um, because I love this band called Half Handed Cloud. Um, who started out with Sufjan Stevens, if that kind of gives you a, an idea of genre. But he sings these cute little like falsetto songs that last about a, a minute. Mm-hmm. And one of his albums is about a lot of the violence in the Old Testament. After listening to this interview... I was like, I don't know if I can listen to that again, that album in the same way.
1: And that was him trying to process it, but him processing it is really different from womanist or feminist theologians. Right, is yes. that what you're trying to say? Yes, okay. definitely.
0: Yeah, I don't know what his point That's is true. there. But to like hear, you know, a song with like little kids sort of sounding like Sunday Can we put a clip in right now? Yes, let's do that. They killed my concubine understand my knife will make it worse send you a piece of her oh no do open my mailbox received an arm please ask and find out whom sent this alarm to all twelve tribes It's weird, it's weird. I don't know. Right, yeah, I'm not sure what to do with that. but, um, But this interview really did make me just rethink how have I heard these stories, how have I interacted with these stories. I really, really enjoyed it because ever since we read Redeeming Love and talked about it or watched it and read it, I'd been thinking, what would someone who actually knows about Hosea say about this book? Uh, Not just Redeeming Love, but Hosea. Yes. Um, And so I was just so excited that you got Dr. Fry to have this conversation.
1: Yeah, Alexiana's amazing. And uh, I have a freak out (laughs) during the interview. (laughs) I don't know if people will tell. Because really what it is, it's about the romanticization of Texts of Terror. And Mm. I it's okay to have a freak out about that so yeah so make sure you follow 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 uh, follow dr alexiana fry on twitter and instagram and she has a book coming out eventually i think she signed a contract this year so so glad she talked to me and put up with me flailing around Uh but yeah here we go I'm so excited. Today, I get to talk to Dr. Alexiana Fry. Um, I can't believe I found somebody who read Redeeming Love when they were younger, went ahead and uh, became an expert in biblical studies and was willing to reread it again (laughs) to talk to me. this I do not take this lightly. Thank you so much, Alexiana, for coming and chatting to me about this book.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's something. It's something. <laughs> I yeah. didn't realize what kind of dissonance I would even be going through reading it after having read it 12 years prior. So it was yeah. an experience for myself as well.
1: Um, yeah. So tell me about the first time you read Redeeming Love. Set the scene. Oh, Where were you? What, what were you like?
2: Okay. whole oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this has to have like a premise for like, I'm sorry for all the things I said when I was a fundamentalist. Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. Essentially, like the amount of people I still need to apologize to is uh, probably insurmountable. So yeah. Um, Yeah, I grew up uh, in the church, uh, but also outside of it, uh, prior to my parents' divorce. There was uh, quite a bit of a downfall there. But of course, then I identified quite a bit with the Gomer slash Angel figure, right? Angel slash Sarah slash however many names uh, Michael Hosea wants to give her. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) um, In the book back then, just because my own journey had been full of, um, you know, intertwined with the white evangelical purity culture and... Um, where did I identify with that? I still remember a moment in time being at a youth group thing I was invited to. And they were like, normally we do drawings, but we're going to give the book Not Even a Hint by Joshua Harris to you. Um, Like it was clear that I was the rebel disobedient girl. And so-
1: (gasps) Wait, 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 wait. They singled you out to be like, you need Josh Harris's book. And what Mm -hmm. was Not Even a Hint? something about keeping oh, yourself pure like
2: even thinking about boys or even thinking <gasps> about sexuality is oh like not even a hint of impurity um mm. and so when I did get to read this book um it almost played upon those pieces that I had been told right i'm uh, I'm a flirt so and that's sinful not to mention that it's reciprocated and it's with other bo- <laughs> Like there's, there's nothing happening to the men in these situations mm-hmm. for me. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, it played upon a lot of that for me of this whole, I'm worthless. I have nothing to offer because people see me as X. Um, and so it really, and I'll talk a lot about this, it really hit on a lot of what even Angel slash Sarah says in the book, um, that she even identifies her mom saying, like, it's all my fault. Um, I did it to myself. Mm. Um, just a lot of that language of, yes, yes, I did it to myself. And we'll, we'll talk about how self-blame is a really significant coping mechanism for people in the midst of trauma, and especially severe trauma to actually gain a semblance of control and in a time when there's no control to be had, blaming yourself is actually a really easy way out, um, to be able to feel like you have some semblance of, okay, at least I, I know I can fix this. Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. So you are already getting into the heart of the issues with this book. And what you're saying is there's some confusing and complicated narratives that some women find empowering while other people, uh, find it really abusive. And so, so I think just setting up this convo, you've already made it clear you know, you, you see it all and we're not here to denigrate women. And if you are a woman who found something empowering in this book, like, I I just want to say like, there's reasons for that. And it's still okay to critique the overarching framework, which I find to be extremely abusive. So, Yes. yes. That's, that's what I'll say about that. I've already heard you say that, but I, I'm curious to know, you
2: went on to become,
1: um, well, what's your degree in? Tell yeah, yeah. me that.
2: Um, so I have my Old Testament PhD. Um, uh, my therapist <laughs> uh, says that I'm um, oddly drawn to the what is disgusting, uh, which is really a great title to have, I guess. Um, so my dissertation research is actually um, on the intersections of Judges and Hosea, just in general for all, all of what we're talking about, uh, maybe massive content slash trigger warning mm-hmm. uh, for everybody. Um, but Judges 19 is the tale of a um, unnamed women, woman who is gang raped and um, and then cut into pieces, those pieces, her body is sent um, all over the nation of Israel as a summons to uh, Ah, yeah.
1: yes. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: That story.
2: So that story. Uh, and uh, we'll get into some of why there are parallels between that passage and Hosea in just a moment, which is really sad.
1: Wow. So Hosea, you know, is the story of uh, a prophet who God tells to marry a woman involved in prostitution. That's what Redeeming Love is a fictionalized version of it, except it's set in like 1800s Gold Rush, California. Um, Now in Judges 19, is the unnamed woman, is she described as a sex worker or a prostitute? Uh,
2: Yes, she is. um, She leaves the Levite's house. She is a second degree wife. She's a concubine. Um, She leaves the Levite's house who has bought her or whatever married her um concubinage is still a really tricky term to unpack mm-hmm. um in, in the hebrew um but they um say that she leaves the house um to go back to her father's house but the word that they use is zona which is uh the same word that they use in in hebrew for prostituting mm-hmm. so she is zonah-ing. She. Um, And it it is hard to specify whether that means she's being unfaithful to him by simply leaving. Um, The Greek translation uh, gets rid of the zonaing altogether and just says that she's angry with him. So we don't know if it started off abusive to begin with, this, mm-hmm. this relationship between the Levite and the concubine. Um, but yes, so the, the Hebrew Bible um, specifies she was unfaithful to him. She was zonaing. And Gomer is also a zonah. Um, and so it's interesting, the parallels there. Both Hosea and the Levite go to speak to the heart of this woman, uh, this zonah to try to win them back. And both stories do not end up quite well. Yeah. So I think
1: it's so helpful to have you kind of talk about the biblical framework. I think those of us who grew up, you know, deep within white evangelicalism, right? There's this really odd disconnect, right? We're told to read the Bible like every year. I'm like, there is so much happening to women that I just can't gloss over. And it reminds me of Rachel Held Evans, right, who did this really powerful lament for the unnamed uh, women, I believe, in that story and and other people. And it was so so helpful for me. And I just want to bring her up and her work with lament around the stories of women in the Bible because, um, you know, Rachel Held Evans did not identify as like a survivor of sexual abuse or anything like that. Um, She was just simply saying, I'm a person. Who needs to lament these and that is a normal response to these stories. And that was so helpful for me to be like, it's just normal to be like, this is disgusting. You just mentioned like disgust is your special theological interest and we need more of that because... Re- like there's so many men who just told me just read this book here's what it means it's no big deal and I'm like it seems like a really big deal this seems like a really big deal to me yeah. um so
2: and I just wanted to interject with that uh-huh. yeah it, and it is a big deal right like we're all told I mean I was <laughs> my my partner my my husband um I still remember you know he's about to try to date me um well into those fundamentalism years and i think i sat him down and asked like are you going to be a spiritual leader um are you going yeah to- are you going to do bible time at night like
1: <laughs> are you well i make you coffee yeah. that's what all these books say you should do make right. your husband coffee and then he reads the bible to you
2: be completely sexually available so sexy. All of the yeah. Time. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah that part too <laughs> that part too Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, Oh, what did he say? Did he say he was going to be your spiritual leader or did he like freak out? That's Uh, a lot of pressure to put on a young man.
2: Well, you know, thankfully we've both grown up in the white Christian nationalism, even complex, right, systems that it be. And um, thankfully we're both kind of out of it. But it was just very funny at that moment too, because I'm like going to get my MDiv and I'm like, will you be the spiritual leader of the house? And he's like- (laughs)
1: Oh, 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 we tried so hard, didn't we? Yeah. We tried so hard. Um, but God bless us. God, yeah. and God bless our husbands who were like, no, I can't. I can't. Um, you're on your own. Why is and that like, a okay. need?
2: <laughs> why? Why is that a need?
1: Well, that's what these books tell us. So maybe we <laughs> could talk a little bit about why was Michael Hosea held up as so attractive and the weirdness... The, the weirdness of the central tenet of the plot being that there's a man named after the prophet Hosea who's aware of the story of Hosea, who then g- goes out and, like, tries to live the story of Hosea. Tell me your thoughts on this, please. Oh, God.
2: Well, what's, what's hard here is that um, I'm grateful that she says this is a fictionalized version of Hosea because, to an extent, there's really not a ton in common with the actual biblical book of Hosea. They're really just... Isn't um, there are a few like massive plot lines that are that stick out that that do work with that? Um, you know, the only similarities I really saw were um, the acts of marriage to a so-called prostitute, mm-hmm. um, as the Hoseas are told to by God.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: the the subtle and also not so subtle acts of abuse um, in between, and the uh, acts of leaving. But even the acts of leaving are are pretty ambiguous in both books. Uh, no, not so much. The acts of leaving and redeeming love are, are not ambiguous. Um, but everything else is fiction and filled in, which is fine. It's an act of fiction. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is, it is quite a bit, uh, different. And what I need to maybe address here too, is that we have these two Hoseas. They're supposed to potentially maybe even be very similar in nature, Mm -hmm. um, Even in the biblical books, we need to be careful how we use and interpret metaphor. Um, I think it's a womanist Renita Weems who says metaphors can hurt, metaphors can distort, metaphors can kill, and metaphors can oppress. Mm. And there's so much in both the biblical book and in Redeeming Love that we need to be very conscientious about how we apply those things um it's interesting to me um it's uh julia m o'brien i i'm just gonna cite a bunch of women oh great <laughs> do it i'm gonna be all about all of these amazing women scholars um she writes a book called challenging prophetic metaphor and she actually remarks that when the author of hosea sought to convince ancient readers of the legitimacy of god's punishment to israel he found an easily usable cultural analogy which is the patriarchally framed marriage Mm-hmm. Uh which that in and of itself should like here it is. If you want to talk about a not so great setup, it is the patriarchal marriage. Um and she talks extensively. There are there's so much scholarship. Um there's actually a scholar out there named Kirsi Cobb and she writes in a book called Feminist Trauma Theologies about how she has also experienced um uh personal. Uh, spousal abuse mm. and she writes about reading uh, the first three chapters of Hosea then through the lens of her own abusive marriage. Wow.
1: Um,
2: and uh, there's a level at which we have to talk about even the the um, aspect of covenant in the Bible and yeah. and what does it look like to consent to something where there are unequal power distributions. Oh, damn it.
1: You're just going straight for everything. I'm sorry. It's gonna no, be- I I I love it, but it's I know it's going to be freeing for some people listening to this, and probably not for everybody. But I'm just like growing up, going to Bible college. Like you're not even allowed to say like, does covenant. Always seem good for people without power? No, it doesn't. No. Um, so thank you for even just saying that. I wonder if we could just step back and if you could really quickly, I'm sorry to ask you to do no, this, if you could okay. really if you could really quickly sum up the biblical book of Hosea for us, oh, yeah. just for oh, yeah. people who don't remember.
2: Oh, well, like me. You're okay. Hosea, we're thinking, lived around the time of 8th century BCE. But essentially what's happening uh, sociopolitically during his time is that they're going through king after king after king after king. So they're in the midst of political upheaval at the same time that Assyria is looming large over here. And they're trying to make sense of what the heck is happening. And during this time, that's when Hosea comes in and he is told by God, uh, why don't you marry a prostitute? And that will be the description of what's happening. Just as this woman is whoring, so is the land. The woman becomes then the uh, the body of Israel itself. <laughs> I could talk all day about how that in and of itself is probably problematic. But uh, from then on, you have uh, instances of uh, she leaves, he names her children terrible things. Wait, say
1: more about that. Oh, <laughs> because <laughs> in the in the book redeeming love michael jose is really into renaming angel it's like a weird thing so i just want to know if that was like a, a interesting thing francine rivers did
2: i think naming in general is important in the book and yes. the hebrew yeah. bible yes uh, the old testament for us um the hebrew bible uh and i want to just reestablish that it is a role that does place people in dominion over others And so um, even O'Brien, I'll come back to Julia O'Brien. She actually talks about how the ideology of what happens in the first three chapters fits the classic pattern of domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, It sanctions violence against women, period. It uh, it reflects the entire constellation of behaviors and attitudes that are reflected by just social workers as abusive. So she's conceiving three children with Hosea. She's immediately verbally and emotionally Abused through rebuke and threat. Um, And this is the very beginning of Hosea 2. She's then isolated in Hosea 2, 6 through 7. And then, of course, there's the odd honeymoon period, right? Of, oh, I'm so sorry, come back. Mm -hmm. I I won't do it ever again. Um, All under the pretense that everything that is happening is loving. And It's interesting. There's another book. (laughs) I'm just going to talk about books. Do Um, it. Do it. There's a woman named Nancy Nam Hun Han, um, and she reads Hosea 1 through 3 with with sex workers in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. she asks them, like, what are you picking up on? And she actually, uh, one of the things that they picked up on was that from a sex worker's perspective, this text denies them any personhood rights to protect themselves and their children from their psychotic husbands. Um, They felt horrified by the violence of the text and offended in terms of their dignity as mothers um, and how the changing of their names actually purposely pits the children against their mothers. Um, But also just to think about like their financial capabilities and economic independence is completely stripped. So it's tied to Hosea now. Like there's no, and I, I think that's interesting in light of what um, Angel slash Sarah wants to do the first time she leaves. She wants to go get her money. Yeah. That is owed her so that she can be free and by herself.
1: Yeah. She it, just wants a little cabin to be alone.
2: What is wrong with that?
1: That sounds beautiful.
2: Uh, yeah, yes, it does. <laughs> um, so, Actually, it's interesting, too, because you have these these sex workers in Hong Kong who actually say that they deem Hosea one through three to be troubling and problematic, not only because but mainly because it's ineffective in its primary purpose, which is to call Israel to account mm. because it justifies violent punishment and also sanctifies it. Um not only that, but the author's clear misogyny um, sanctions and promotes rape culture in general. And so it's interesting, um, too, that the sex workers, when they read it, they heard it almost as a tale of caution for themselves. Um, like, wow. like take note, this is a text of danger and death. Like, We need to be very careful of oh. who we interact with. And it's interesting that they would think that of Hosea, right? Um, it's it's all really. I almost forgot the question that you actually asked. Well, just summing up, just summing up the
1: book, right? Just summing up the book. I think you did an excellent job, though, of just saying like beyond just summing up the book. Like, I think bringing in how sex workers read the book is so important. Now, again, coming to Redeeming Love, which is this novelized, stylized version of this book, one thing that has been really hard for me as I have tried to read the whole book, which I did not get all the way through it, (laughs) um, is people who have experienced um, all sorts of trauma, including, uh, you know, the trauma of sex work or prostitution and all these kinds of things have said that this book was really helpful for them. Right. And then other people have said this book was given to me to convince me to stay in my abusive marriage, yep. to accept abusive relationship dynamics with a smile and with gratitude for God, you know, to God. So, so that's where I'm sort of like, wow, I think obviously listening to women who've been the most impacted by, a society that is violent and dehumanizing is so important. But that doesn't mean there's been a monolithic response, right? To both redeeming love and and books like Hosea and texts like Joshua 19. So I you know that I know that but we're just gonna say that right now. At the same time, we need to prioritize the voices who say this is this is abusive um, because those voices have not been allowed to write. Uh, textbooks have not been allowed to do <laughs> any of those things. And Francine Rivers um, really dismisses and ignores uh, the voices of many, many, many people who said this book has been used to hurt me. And she yeah. just kind of is like, "Oh, I, how is that possible? I had no idea." It's like, no, you know,
2: she says that, and yet the first sexual act between Hosea, Michael Hosea, and Angel. Is literally quote unquote on page 155 my way, not yours. So, so tell
1: me. Okay, here's the deal. Alexiana, everybody was like, this book is so great and it's so
2: healing. Yeah, yeah. I, it all fits. What's hard is, right? The, the book almost creates these two binaries, right? You have Duke and you have Alex Stafford over here, and they are clearly the bad guy.
1: They're, they're pimps. They're
2: very clearly the bad guy. They're edophiles. very clearly yeah. violent. Very clearly abusive. And then over here, you have Michael Hosea and John and all Joseph these, even. Yeah, these benevolent patriarchs. Yeah, benevolent, so benevolent, and yet, just because it's done more nicely and in the name of God, doesn't make it more benevolent. And so she creates what we think is this binary and yet it's, it's not the binary doesn't hold. Um, if you actually pick apart some of the stuff underneath <laughs> these things, um, all Sarah wanted was to be free. Um, and I think that's part of the problematic, uh, you know, I could talk all day about some of the problematic, uh, <laughs> narratives around sex work in the book in general. Um, but that's not the point. Um, All Sarah wanted was to be free. You know, she leaves the first time simply to go get her money so she can be alone. But what ends up happening throughout the book as she is um, being redeemed, right, is that that freedom then becomes becomes to be dictated by others, including Michael Hosea. Mm -hmm. And Sarah just needs to see it in his way. Um, There's multiple times in the book. There's one time where she talks about how she just wants to be free. And she actually tells him that. And he in his head is like, but you are free she's not right and she's Um, not
1: experiencing his cabin where she has no access to any town or anybody else as freedom right
2: page 285 literally says and she's saying to her he's saying she says and what what have i to promise you his eyes lit with gentle humor to obey
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah,
2: that's the that's the whole like, thing is
1: she just needs to obey him. And because he hears from God, right directly, um he's the conduit of the voice of God and the love of God. And this is another thing that confuses me. Um I'm in the process of being diagnosed as neurodivergent, so yeah. I'm like this could just be that. But I don't I just don't find it sexy right <laughs> <laughs> to be told all you have to do is submit and submission yeah. is so
2: hot like I just I just my like, definition of freedom has to be yours yes and I just am like this is not
1: this is not great for my libido and that's the thing that's so weird <laughs> is that people read this for a devotional element and like I don't know how else to say it but oh, they find I it very sexy. It Smut. Yeah. But it's like the devotional elements, like I feel closer to God and I really want to, you know, go have get sex with, with a man yeah. like Michael Hosea. Yeah. And so that's why I'm like, my brain is not tracking at yeah. this. And yet, with everybody who's like sort of studied Christian publishing, Christian romance, and all that, they say that's like the number one thing women say is like, this book brought me closer to God. And that's why it kind of makes it untouchable, right? To critique and it makes it untouchable to talk about the problematic elements. I have friends and I love them dearly. And they're like, well, like, yeah, redeeming love, I bet it doesn't hold up, but it really taught me to love the book of Hosea. And it taught me to love God. And I'm just like, that's so fascinating because then it becomes untouchable, right? Um, it's just this added element of putting this religious stuff on to things that actually protects it um, from being, Dealt with. That is my, this, again, I'm like, no, I feel weird talking about it because it doesn't make sense to me. And I understand that it makes sense to other people.
2: And I, I think what's hard in all of that too is um, actually a different scholar asks the question wouldn't it have been more effective to use the metaphor of like a male rapist instead of a woman prostitute? Right. Because again, going back to the Weems um, metaphors and what they do, um, men identified themselves with Yahweh. And with Hosea and this marriage, you don't find men who are like, well, I'm Gomer. Uh, that That's not really happening. Mm. And so as that's been fairly consistent, if they, if, if I'm not going to just shake my fist, but <laughs> kind of, um, they really wanted to make the point in a patriarchal culture that this isn't working, this, this whole thing isn't working. The metaphor should have personified a male if they wanted to make that point. And so we have to ask then about even the text of Hosea, if it's actually doing something differently than we assumed it was doing. Can we imagine, um, there's another <laughs> quote here, um, could Gomer's mistreatment be similar then to Hagar's? or even to the woman dismembered, cryptically alluding to the divine mistreatment of exiles who are brutally abandoned. Perhaps through silent or silenced dissent, Hosea's metaphors expose the horror and humiliation Israel has to endure. Maybe, just maybe, as the Israelites begin to experience the fallout of covenants, as they experience the fallout of everything they've known, they are actually shaking their fist and calling it for what they think it is, which is abusive, um, is the educational suffering. And I have so many issues with like, uh, and honestly it is a scapegoat when, when suffering occurs and we look for a reason, um, you know, when I learn this lesson, then my suffering will be over. Right. Yeah. Um, is the educational suffering they're they're going through by the hand of Yahweh when they're simply subjected to, um, there's a double edge here in the interpretation of the even the biblical book of Hosea. Is is love even part of the book of Hosea? Uh,
1: romantic love? It doesn't seem like it. But that's how we have liked to interpret it. And as you're talking, you know, I think this can be really stressful for people who grew up with this, uh, you know, ironclad view of biblical inerrancy. You know, both you and I uh, still have such high respect for the scriptures, which yeah. is why I'm willing to do this kind of work when it yeah. comes to books like Hosea. And I find it to be so fascinating just, uh, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, because I I do not have my PhD in Old Testament history, but this, this idea of the revolutionary nature of this work of holy scriptures that is struggling with the reality that their God has not saved them from yeah. suffering and yeah terrible things keep happening to them. They keep being conquered over and over again, but they refuse to assimilate into their conquering cultures, you know, fully. And so I'm like, that's interesting. That's what we can talk about, right? That's, this is, these are stories of people grappling with the utter failure of their God to protect them in the ways they wanted to be protected. And so I'm like, there we go. I can talk about that. I do not feel like I want to do that work with redeeming love because that's not what that book is about at all. No, You know, it's not dealing with trauma in a way that is helpful to anyone. And I still think we can say the scriptures do. (laughs) You know, they do contain things for those of us who struggle with these questions.
2: Yes. Yep. They do. Um, And I actually, is it your husband that's working on attachment theory? Yes. Uh Like, it's interesting to me too, just to consider like, what kind of attachment do the Israelites actually have with with Yahweh? Darren Guest uh, writes about attachment theory in the Book of Judges and it is fascinating. Um, Like the anxious attachment that they have like, constantly needing to perform and constantly needing, like just so anxious about this relationship. And they need to be. But at the same time you ask the question, do they need to be? Yeah. And then <laughs> and then also
1: what makes it a little different though is like they they had to have enough um security to be able to write these books where yes. they reckon with the failure, right? Yeah. And most religious, you know, stuff is like, here's how we were victorious, here's how we were yes. saved. And and that is not the majority of the biblical text, to be no. perfectly honest. Louis Stolman so,
2: literally yeah. calls this the book
1: of the losers.
2: Yes. And so I think so, it is that
1: is so fascinating to me. Yeah, and again, that does not translate to redeeming love. It ends up being basically pr- prosperity gospel, um, including you know, once Angel slash Sarah, you know, fully submits to Michael, she. This is the thing that bothers me the most. It's like at the end of the book, she creates a home right? For sex workers. Cause yeah. she's like, this is a systemic issue. There's nowhere for these women to go. I'm going
2: to help. Which but is then- beautiful because trauma, when you're healing through it um, or remaking at least your world, most people who have been traumatized, who are making sense of their trauma actually do become advocates. That's beautiful. So why didn't
1: the book end there? Why couldn't Mike? Okay. I'm going to fanfic this. Okay. Why can't Michael Hosea just find... Angel slash Sarah. And she left because, right at the end, because she couldn't give him kids and that made her feel bad. Yes. And like, you know, yes. she still feels so worthless and so,
2: yeah, so, all that. So his
1: love obviously didn't help her that much or she still feels so which, bad about herself.
2: Not to interrupt you, but also to interrupt you. There's that weird educational suffering piece though, because like she leaves and it's this educational suffering that allows for Sarah to leave for San Francisco because she has made him an idol. Like... He's literally praying to God like why did you let her leave why is she leaving and he's essentially like she made you an idol. Like that's, that's why. Oh,
1: yeah. So okay. so her idolatry of him had to be broken. It's also yeah. confusing. Yeah. Also confusing um but she eventually finds out that Michael still loves her or something so then she goes back to him. Right. And that's how the book ends happily. I would love it if he just oh, moved to San Francisco ends and with
2: helped the family with all of the biblical names.
1: Oh, really? I didn't even read to that oh my part.
2: And the, the epilogue. Um, she bears like six children or something, and they all become famous. Oh. Well, yeah, that's not
1: prosperity gospel
2: at all. I, I oh, do wonder how people don't worry. When they have 65 plus years of marriage and Hosea dies, Michael Hosea dies, and then she dies the next day, that all they wanted on their tombstone was okay. a simple cross. Oh, <gasps> Okay, I gotta I gotta
1: write that in my will now. Me and Christian, <laughs> same thing. He dies, I die the next day, crosses on her graves, perfect. 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 I love it. Um yes, totally. I love it so much. But I I just do think like, why couldn't they have ended it in a way that wasn't all about the patriarchy and her finally Submitting fully to Michael. And also, you know, she's somebody who experienced forced sterilization and then miraculously yeah. was able to have a ton of kids. Like that's so but problematic.
2: Clara so prophetic. Oh.
1: Yeah, she gets the happy ending uh-huh. that we want for her. And so that's the the tricky thing, right? This is a this is why women read romance in general, is we you submit,
2: we get what we want.
1: Well, and you want a woman to have a happy ending. And so that's what this book wrote. Now, the Christian devotional element, right, on top of wanting to see a woman experience a happy ending, um, I get the desire there. I get why it was powerful to people. But everything leading up to it is just basically legitimizing abuse, um, you know, as a part of your story or else as a part of your redemption. And I'm just like, no, yep, no, no, no. And I, I I just don't want that view of God for anyone.
2: It's a small view. Um, and I don't think God is that small. I just don't. Um, and you know, I call Sarah a Jezebel all you want, but she wanted freedom. She wanted to have her own little cabin and heal on her own. I'm grateful. The story has her healing right? In Mm -hmm. in whatever way. Is that healing? I don't fully know. Um, You know, she finds out that the divine purpose for her to have children and to be a wife is healing. Mm -hmm. Great. For a lot of women, that is what they want. Um, But I I cannot say the same for myself. And what ends up happening throughout the book is that is beaten into her. Not, not, literally beaten right (laughs) but verbally um almost spiritually i mean michael michael almost physically assaults her yeah
1: right and and says like if i start hitting her i won't stop that's the only reason he doesn't and stuff like that i'm just like i can't get over that no you know no no i don't think i should get over it
2: sometimes sometimes
1: these books and like Sometimes romance culture in general is like, oh, don't yuck somebody's yum. And just, right. you know, everybody yeah. finds different things
2: I'm like, okay sure. or sexy. And I'm just like, no, if I don't think be, it's ever okay. I'm If we're going to get like real freaky here, like if it needs to be that you and your relationship needs to have like consensual, non-consensual sex, great. You do you. I'm not going to, as long as it's consensual, non-consensual, th- that is a thing.
1: Oh my gosh! I had no idea. This is is, a thing. This is homeschool Danielle talking here,
2: (laughs) and this is uh, doing too much research uh, talking over here. Um, But I, for somebody who has experienced trauma in any sort of way, uh, personally, for somebody who has experienced trauma in that way, I the idea of having my trauma healed through non-consent doesn't work. Right. That framework just doesn't hold. Um, Survivors, um, especially uh, survivors of sexual abuse of any kind, um, need to be heard. They need their needs to be met. And she vocalized her needs and they were not met.
1: Yeah, and I think what's helped me is I've read, I have to read a few other Christian romance books for this season, and I started with Redeeming Love, went to the depths of despair, no had, some, had some panic attacks, Um, not kidding, and I was like, is this what it's going to be like from here on out? All of but you know what? I think Francine Rivers was an anomaly. I think this is one of the worst of the worst, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. I've read yeah. some others, and I'm like, but this one gets into so much trouble for me by saying, first of all, conflating Sarah's trauma with sin and her choosing sin. And then we're supposed to just keep yelling in our minds at Sarah, just like Michael does. Like, Lord, why did you give me such an impossible woman? And when you're like, no, she's a traumatized woman. And that's, that's the stuff I don't see in these other Christian romance, the Jeanette Oak. Like, yes, there's some kind farm men who just like slowly, slowly get these women to love them and I'm like I like that that's That's fine. fine that is what would happen in the 1800s you know what I mean in a society that didn't value women what I hate about redeeming love it's like Oh she chooses these things. Michael's the only patient one. Like and he does not listen to her. That doesn't mean it's all bad. Like I feel like there's there's elements in the book where he's very focused on her experiencing sexual pleasure. You yes, know things that many evangelical that. women never grew up hearing. And no. so you're like, yes, you should be it you should be married to someone who thinks you're freaking hot, who wants to, you know, pleasure. do things with you and make you feel awesome. Yeah. Like, that is fine. It's funny. And I don't want to denigrate at all. I think there's no. elements that show. Um, one of my, I just talked to uh, someone uh, who was saying, like, I think for, for Francine Rivers, for evangelical women in the early 90s, like, Michael Jose actually was their version of a man who aggressively pursued consent. That's an interesting way to look at that it. That is not how right? I read it. No, no, That could have been true in 1991. So I'll just say that benefit of the doubt. He's that. aggressively trying to pursue consent. <laughs> that's not how I read it. Uh-uh.
2: But there's elements of that. So yeah, it's tricky. Aggressively walk over any semblance of consent.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's how I more experienced it. I'm also um,
2: waiting for somebody to like, um, make like a pretty quote. Uh, Instagram of like the quote where as soon as he finds out that she's a prostitute, it's just like in a cute little box with flowers like God, why her? Why not a gently reared girl untouched until her wedding night? Why not a God-fearing widow? Lord, send me a plain woman, kind and enduring, someone who would work at my side, someone who will get dirt beneath her fingernails but doesn't have it already in her blood. (gasps) Oh,
1: and that's just how they view... They they talk about her all the time. She's Absolutely. a spoiled dove. She's super duper hot. So hot. It's totally. It, 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 and many times the book makes it seem like she really likes having sex with these men, which she obviously doesn't. It's so confusing. <laughs> it's so confusing. awful. And it's. I also think Francine Rivers is coming off of some of these other Christian romance books where it, like... The plainness of the women and the men was like a part of the appeal because so you don't talk about their bodies, you don't talk about yes. how they look. And yeah. Francine Rivers was like, "No, these oh, are no, hot, really these hot. are hot people. These are beautiful people." Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think th- I think it all kind of, you know came together at a moment to make Christian women be like, oh my gosh. And then they felt free to share it with each other because that's another story of this book as it was shared between oh, moms and daughters and it grandmas. It's essentially
2: a gospel tract, right? Like, yeah,
1: because they were like, it's an allegory of Hosea. Now, if it hadn't been an allegory of Hosea, I do not think this book would not have been shared.
2: You're probably right. Right. I mean, it's pretty spicy. The spiciness that occurs in here does occur in the Bible, like, but not like. But trying to romanticize that is so (laughs) upsetting. It's a little upsetting, especially when you have um, Miriam at the threshing floor of Paul. Oh yeah, we can't even get into that subplot. But somebody the Ruth parallel. I can't. Somebody
1: needs to rewrite the story of Miriam for me because I just I couldn't. Do it. She's like a 17-year-old who ends up marrying a man who raped um Angel and then is redeemed, or is the element of Angel being redeemed? It's so awful. It's so messed up. I can't I can't go down that rabbit hole. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I can't do it. But I totally got it. I want to know if you think can we classify Redeeming Love as Hosea fan fiction? Is that what this is?
2: I think if we're being honest about how things are non consensual, sure but you have to be honest about the abuses that are happening in the biblical text as well as in the book. And I don't think people are willing to do that.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, fanfic culture in general is really fascinating, right? Because in some ways it's people utilizing their tools and their outsider status to write themselves into the story or write an ending they want to see. And so I see Francine Rivers doing this, honestly, Absolutely. trying to come to, trying to, come to terms with her understanding of what it means to be a born again, Christian coming from her background as a romance writer, um, possibly seeing herself as really damaged and in need of yes. love of God yes. and love of man. Like I see her writing this, writing herself into the narrative, writing all this into the narrative. That doesn't mean it's not, unproblematic because a lot of fanfic is. So th- I'm not saying it's all good or all bad. No. But there's just this element that makes it so confusing is she reclaimed some of it and, um, and then perpetuated some really harmful narratives as well.
2: Yep. But the hard part about the perpetuation of those narratives is like those narratives. If you read Hosea literally, if you don't attempt to wrestle with the text in any sort of way, Hosea's also perpetuating terrible narratives, right? Like, It is 22 of like, we have to be honest about what is in the biblical text. Um, And I hate doing that when it is so uh, harsh. This is the reality though. And how do you say this is in our, this is in our scriptures and we still see it as sacred. And yet we can still go, what's going on here? We can still ask questions of God. We can still ask questions of the text. That's not unfaithful. God. Yeah, <laughs>
1: how, how does the book of Hosea end? Um, well. <laughs> <laughs> you have your you have your nice thick Bible right well, my there for nice, us.
2: Th- oh, journaling Bible too. Oh, so. wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You, you are a very good Christian woman. I'm let me just the tell you. That. <laughs> best
2: Christian. Oh, sorry. If I was really to be the best Christian, I'm the worst.
1: Oh, that's true. I'm, the I'm
2: just a, a I'm just soiled a worm. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um the the very last verse is let whoever is wise understand these things and whoever is insightful recognize them for the ways of the lord are right and the righteous walk in them but the rebellious stumble in them essentially what happens throughout um after 1 through 3 which most scholars are going to designate as its own little thing which is interesting because hosea 1 through 3 1 through 2 he's married to gomer and then he's told to marry a prostitute again and we don't know if it's gomer or another prostitute mm. And throughout the rest of it are these various prophecies, right, of what is going to happen to Israel, what is going to happen to Judah, um, what they have done. Um, uh, My specific research was on chapters 9 and 10, um, as they talked about the sin of Gibeah, which is the incident in Judges 19. Mm. Um, Like, you have, you've crossed some lines. Uh,
1: So the end of it is sort of like indicting Israel for harming that woman.
2: Um, I believe it is. Uh, wow. Other people do not. Okay. Okay. Um, and so it really is just a a thing on interpretation there. Wow. <laughs> and you really can. You can read Hosea through the lens of, yeah, he is, um, in fact, a mouthpiece of Yahweh. He is enacting out this covenant, uh, properly so, and yeah, he's going to smite them down, right? Um, wow. And for sure, throughout prophecy, for the most part, most prophecy, but not all, is going to have some bits of hope. And I think that's lovely. Um, but for the most part, it is a uh, is pretty damning piece. Um, and I believe that the text is depicting Hosea going through this process of going, what is happening all around me? Do I believe that God is acting justly? And do I believe that the people around me are acting justly? Mm. Um, Like what part do all of us have to play in this uh, massive downfall that we're experiencing in history? Um, Which is hard. Um, Ultimately, I believe that the sin of Gibeah that happens in Judges 19 and is is referenced in Hosea 9 through 10 is um, the sin of othering. Um, How do we push people aside and, and claim them as less than? And um, especially since women were so marginalized in those societies, it's best picked up through the body of a woman. It really just is. Um, Wow. But that's me. (laughs) That's just me. (laughs) Um, And that's through mainly a trauma lens, but that's... Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, is there anything
1: else you want to tell us about redeeming love? How do you feel now that I made you read it?
2: Oh, well, I hated every moment of it. And actually, we're staying with some friends... (laughs) here in California and I would read certain lines out loud and they were like, please stop, please Please stop, please stop. stop. I'm like, can't, can't. I got to share my pain with somebody. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you asked me to do it. And I was like, in the name of research, I will read whatever I need to read. Well, I can't even begin to thank you. (laughs) But I do have one piece that I feel like needs to be brought up. I, I didn't get to listen to the, um, To the podcast that you and Crispin had on the movie slash book, but um, I did want to bring up um, not only ask that we need to continue to ask questions, not only of the book, but also the biblical text involving purity, gender and consent, freedom and agency. Um, But we have to ask why we believe people um, deserve to be treated so poorly as well. Like, Mm -hmm. um, even in Judges 19, um, many feminists try to say, like, oh, well, Zona just means she left her house, so she was being abused, right? Well, why do we need to justify, like, maybe she was being a prostitute. Like, why do we need to then justify that? So, like, oh, if she was a prostitute, then she deserves to be gang raped and dismembered, right? Like, why do we believe that people deserve to be treated so poorly. And I think we need to talk about that in general in America when it comes to the carceral complex. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, consequences to our actions, but punishment, but carceral mindsets. Um, Like if Gomer wasn't a prostitute, if Angel wasn't a prostitute, um, then would we be considering the treatment in the book a little differently? Would we? Um, Yeah. So the binary of like virgin and whore unnecessarily brings about this conversation of who is rapable and who isn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I believe that what happens to Angel sometimes in her own quote unquote marriage is rape. And interestingly, that hits hard on the intersections of purity culture and what it upholds as well which mm-hmm. is another facet of rape culture. Um, it just, But ironically, um, purity culture is mainly made out of uh, white anxieties and fears. And so I wanted to bring that up because um, <clears throat> regularly throughout the book, there isn't a diverse crowd, okay? Um, mm-hmm. It's mainly white people.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but terms such as, and I again, uh, this isn't pleasant, terms such as oriental, And then Mm -hmm. the stereotypes of Indians who have stolen Mm -hmm. and killed as well as Susanna at the end is going to help with the house of Magdalene. Right. And her father is saying then internally to himself, I'm going to lose her after all, not to a wild young zealot who intends to take her off into the wilderness and convert the heathen Indians, but to Angel and others like her, which yes, this depicts for sure that time period and what white evangelicals actually believed for sure. Mm Um, but even Michael's discussion of his father and how he fled because oh, a yeah. beautiful young slave girl was more of a temptation that he could handle mm-hmm. after his father gave her to him. Sure. We have that glowing sentence that she throws in there that Michael would have freed everybody if he took over, right? But even the story about how one enslaved man was then freed and then he had it worse than he if he would have stayed— yeah. Um, is something abhorrent, so you know, while Angel is white and she's the soil dove, she is Mara until she becomes deserving. There's a lot of conversation even throughout here that's pretty steeped in, in uh, white anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do we redeem Angel so that we can have a quiverful family and continue to spread the good news of our whiteness? Um, it, it is subtle. And underneath all of it, but it, that's kind of how I was raised as well, right? Like in those churches, like <laughs> it's subtle. Sometimes it's not so direct, but sometimes it is direct, like the heathen Indians, right? Quote unquote. And I think we need to be careful in how we we see even upholding purity culture um, actually uh I forget who wrote this, but how patriarchy moves hand in hand to uphold militarism, racism, oppression and hierarchy. Yeah. Um, and how that is subtle, but yet in here. Yeah. And I think you're
1: so right. Um And this is where Francine Rivers and Redeeming Love, you know, fits squarely in the overarching theme of Christian romance books. We look at the explosion of Amish romance, Mm -hmm. um, we look at Jeanette Oak and her pioneer stories, like they were all perpetuating whiteness in these ways. And they had these, you know, virginal women, you know, who helped carry it out. And I, and so I think you're right. Like Francine Rivers is squarely a part of that tradition where she diverges is Delving deeper into trauma and writing more, you know, erotica into her yeah, works, so. right? And so, and so that's where it diverges <laughs> a little bit. And I do think that's where it gets so tricky is, um, we want to honor women. We want to honor women who find things of value in these stories while also critiquing them as patriarchal white supremacist, manifest destiny narratives. Now, oh, this is so e- we can do this so easily. Can't we? Oh, nothing, nothing uh, to see here, folks. <laughs> so I think that's what we've been trying to do. Um, I do think it also deserves to be said that, uh, some women who have found such solace in this text of redeeming love and this novelization of the biblical book of Hagar do that because fundamentally they do see themselves as um, soil doves, as people yeah. who are deeply, deeply um,
2: just Unworthy. rotten they their
1: comfort. And that is really hard for me yeah. to, I want to, um, I want them to find healing. And I just wish it didn't have to be at the expense of their own self loathing, like that self loathing has to be a part of that narrative. I just find so sad. And, um, I, I just hope we have some better frameworks for us moving forward where we can pursue love. We can pursue, um, secure attachment, you know, yeah. even in a romantic relationship, I would yes. wish that for everyone, yes. you know, yes.
2: and again, um, self-blame is such a powerful coping mechanism. It does yeah. bring back agency, but it's, it's ultimately not going to, to help heal. Um, isn't that the truth of it? Oh, it's hard. And I want that so badly for, for women. And again, because 12 years ago or however long ago it was that I read this, I did, I I identified with Angel so Mm. much. Um, and that was really beautiful for me and powerful for me. I remember tears streaming down my face as the book ended, um, as Mm. she's ripping off of her clothes and coming to her beloved, right? There's this essence of like, I am fully before you. Wait, she rips off her clothes? Yeah, she rips off her clothes. She comes back and she peels off layer by layer, even her shoes. Even her shoes. It makes a point. <laughs> I'm just. <laughs> but there is that level of like. That's, Why that... did I stop reading? Now I'm questioning <laughs> this. <laughs> there is that level though of like, there is something beautiful about the hat. Like that you're willing to come fully vulnerable before someone. Mm-hmm. Um, however, what if we could write a different narrative? Like, is there a different fanfic that we can create out of Hosea? Like, I think imagination is so powerful and we have the opportunity to imagine something better.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I think that's a good word to end it on. Anybody out there, you feel called by the Lord to write some fanfic about <laughs> redeeming love? I say go for it. Go for I'm not sure I will read it, but um, (laughs) you do you, boo. (laughs) But thank you so much, Dr. Fry, uh, for coming on here and talking to us and doing this hard work of reading these texts. I appreciate so much your personal story and also just all the research you've done. We'll make sure to get a transcript of this so that we could get all those resources. um, And you could probably send me a list of those too. Absolutely. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. This was fun. I mean, as fun as it can be, right? I know. We, made, we tried.
0: We made it fun. Yeah. We made it enjoyable.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.
0: This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and send us emails at propheticimaginationstation at gmail.com. You can join our Patreon community for as little as $1.50 a month for more discussions of evangelical media and the occasional virtual hangout. You can find show notes and transcription of this episode at our website, propheticimaginationstation.com. If you've enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left us a review on iTunes. And lastly, between the two of us, we've written a few books. You can find Danielle's latest book, Myth of the American Dream, and Crispin's book, Attached to God, wherever books are sold.